Hello Tabletop Wargamers, and welcome to Tried and True, a podcast hosted by the Delaware War Machine community. Join us as we dive deep into topics around our favorite games, exploring methods and techniques proven to enhance anyone's gaming experience. Hello everybody, and welcome to the 17th episode of Tried and True. I am your host, Paul. I'm Dan. I'm Erica. Hi, I'm Andy. And this is the first time in a real long time that we've actually had everybody on for the first time. This is super exciting. It's like a little reunion. Yeah, it's a, a novel event indeed. We see each other all the time, Paul. Yeah, it's true. All right, well, hey, let's go ahead and uh, thank a couple of people for making this happen. So thank you to Marlon Dice, Gonzo, super awesome guy. He's been able to give us another platform to go share all the great news. Follow along the other podcasts out there. He has Minority Report. Boca Broadcast, War Dice as well. All great stuff. Also want to do a special shout out to Advanced Maneuvers. Tony, all the other guys over there have been like super awesome, super great. If you like what you're listening to, consider subscribing to our YouTube channel. Loads of battle reports and a lot of fun releases come down the line. And if you really like what we come up with, feel free to take a look at us on Patreon. All of your support, all your little donations help us putting out good content going into Mark IV and all the other fun stuff. But we got to start off with some really, really fun stuff happening. So Erica, I think you should probably start this up because the, the, the channel direction is going to be changing a little bit, isn't it? So because our, our game that we love so much is evolving, so must try it and true. So we are beginning to transition from primarily Mark Three channel into Mark Four. So if you haven't checked out the YouTube channel already, we do have a poll that's out and we're basically asking, hey, you know, what kind of content do our viewers want to see? And right now it's Mark Four, baby. So you're going to see as we're uh, moving into this new edition of the game, some of our release our release schedule is going to be a little wonky going into the fall but we are definitely planning on putting together a how to play mark four because i know we have a bunch of returning players and veteran players and brand new players actually a lot of new folks coming to the game so we want to offer a, a resource for for those players our gaming group delaware war machine is working on some pretty cool 3d elevated terrain we're finally going to get the train yard online so we kind of split it up among all the gamers so everybody's painting that up (laughs) yeah so i'm excited to uh be able to get that get that on film and play on it and then erica didn't yeah you got your box though didn't you didn't you just get your cater guys yes i got my winter core actually last week last wednesday when we were talking to matt getz yeah chris one of our our community members is helping me paint up that box right now I'm super excited. I like the off green, you know, Kador color. So I think we have um, an army box of Orgoth, Kador uh, that we're going to be able to showcase on the channel. So super excited. Can't wait to play with with these models. Dan, are you excited for tomorrow? Yeah, I finally got the notification that my Mark IV miniatures are going to be coming in the day after we record this interview. So or we record this podcast episode. So I'm super hyped for that. But I, I'm still also really excited to get our, our one big sign off to Mark III battle report going um do you want to do you want to spoil that erica or is it would that be more andy at that point yeah let's get andy andy what's what do we got going on what are you bringing dan i'm gonna bring strakov and as many colossals as i can fit into a list we three kings will meet you (laughs) we're just gonna throw down with a bunch of big stuff before the edition ends it's gonna be great yeah big old like kaiju fight in there it's gonna be great the pacific rim battle report reset the clock (laughs) so with that i'm upset that i wasn't able to hit it but erica andy dan do you want to go ahead and give a quick update on the sussy scuff how did that went 
Sure. So Andy and I were, uh, we TO'd the event along with the Maryland War Machine. So kind of just a quick synopsis. So our meta is a little less than a year old now. Maryland started up around the same time. We're like, hey, if we're still kicking it in a year, wouldn't it be cool if we do like some store dojo showdown between Delaware and Maryland and do it Susquehanna scuffle because we're on the Susquehanna River, right? We're on the north side, they're on the south side. <laughs> so we really kind of put it together as a celebration of our meadows growing over the year, which was really cool. And we ended up, we posted the event. It sold out in 24 hours and we had a store from... We had the Delaware store, Maryland store. We had a store from PA and a store from Virginia all come throw down. So it was a lot of fun, you know, when organizing tournaments. I think it's really important to, you know, identify your audience. And we had a bunch of new players. We made it a team event to kind of entice some of our other newer players who haven't played in a steamroller before. So we teamed up one veteran player with two junior new players. And for a lot of a lot of uh, folks that came, this was their very first steamroller. And it was a lot of fun. Received really well. We had some awesome prize support. I don't know if anyone's, you know, if you had a chance to take a look at the music video yet, but the prize table kept getting more insane as the day went on. Like people were like, I had this in my car. I have that in my car. And one of our players, Anthony, who's brand new, walked away with like the entire Kador faction. So <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Yeah, this was uh, the biggest event that we've run so far. It was three man teams. Everyone was really, really welcoming and patient with us running it because we're still getting our legs under under us with the larger events and stuff like that. We're most of our experience is like twelve man steamrollers. So um, here's hoping we make it bigger next year. Yeah, so I was just going to say just one more thing to kind of end on that is, you know, with, with our metas trying to promote the community, because a lot of people who are in the store who are checking us out, helping us vote for Best Painted Model, they had played in Mark II and left. And a lot of it had to do with like the, the community was super hyper competitive and, you know, the word tox- toxicity, toxic kind of gotten thrown around. So we're really trying to promote that community first game second and that's really starting to invite more people back into the fold especially our casual players you know what brought more people that had nothing to do with war machine than anything else just the painting competition just a lot of really pretty models painted up and everyone voting on just which one won the painting competition Uh, we got more people to just kind of walk by and start conversations that way I was going to say is like looking at the painting models is between I saw Jimmy's Colossal and then there was the, the Mountain King. Oh, my gosh. It's just so good. I still voted for Loki. <laughs> Yo, he's a great painter. Tell you what. I agree. The uh, the painting competition is a great way to draw people in, especially if they're pastors by and they don't know exactly what's going on with your event. I think that level of artwork can speak to everybody universally. So they are wandering by and they see a table full of really beautifully painted miniatures. They're naturally going to stop and ask, you know, what is this? And then you can use that as a starting point for your conversation to draw them in. If you're putting on a big event, consider a painting challenge or a painting competition. It's really easy to start. You can do it you know, blind. It doesn't have to be terribly official. And it's just a great way to get some extra eyes on. I had the good luck of being able to play in the event. We, as the organizers, we each brought an army just in case there were last minute dropouts. And uh, as it were, there were some. So I got to be on a team. And I brought some rather casual lists for the event. I put that uh, list with the three Colossals on the table once or twice. And I also brought a list with over 36 Iron Fang miniatures, and it was great. Um, So um, uh, Paul hates me for running it, I think. But uh, Very casual, very casual. (laughs) 
capital C. I'm still not convinced that list actually does anything. It just kind of sits there and gets in the way. <laughs> you get armor 26 per turn. It's great. And then you walk through scathers and you just die. It's wonderful. <laughs> that's, that's right. Um, so with that, though, and then how about all the new Merc models that dropped? So the time of the recording is September 14th, and they ended up having all the different Merc models. I'm telling you, the Iris model that they just released, I was so excited for that. It didn't fit my headcanon. I was like, Iris the Soul Hunter, you know, would have been. But you know what? Her with Voas, I'm like, I, I, I love it even more. Yeah, give point. her a big sword. Yeah, no, it's great. And then she also has her little crossbow as well. I cannot wait to play Dusk, and I can't wait to put her on the table. She's going to be so much fun. Get to add her to my pile of irises. The the models that were showcased, I really like the, the Doom Reaver chick, uh, Prisoner Numbers. She <laughs> she looks really cool. I like the idea of a like a Doom Reaver warrior model that hasn't been you know drawn insane by this Orgoth weapon. So I think her story is going to be really interesting. And yeah, she's a cool model. Like the all the sculpts are awesome, but like the the women, the female models are like on point. They look great. Oh yeah, that Alexia model, the her cloak looks really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I can't wait to get more details on Alexia. They mentioned something about her refilling units, which I think is going to be really cool and compelling with the new changes for Mark IV. Excited to see that interaction and, and what it's capable of offering an army. But Erica, what what's the under over on Prisoner 102822 actually being Zerkova with that uh, facial scar there? I, I, don't, I don't think so. I'm going to yeah. say... I'm going to say no. New character? I think the dreadlocks makes it I think it's going to be a new character. All, all yeah. the Doom Reavers have dreadlocks. <laughs> Do they? Yep. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, they learned something new. Yeah, the man they're... fields 30 at a time, he'll know. <laughs> <laughs> I still have eight painted units and one more full unit of girls. I, I agree. The uh, the female managers from Privateer Press are some of my favorites because you can always count on them being like, you know, actual characters and not just an excuse to put chicks in chainmail. So I, I always love that... Uh, you know, a bit of class that Privateer Press brings to the table, honestly. Oh, hell yeah. Some of my favorite models are the Trollkin Raiders, because it's, uh, it's the ladies throwing bombs. I'm always <laughs> going to go back to my Mage Hunter Assassin, like just such a powerful looking model that I put on the table. I love her so much. And then she decapitates a, uh, you know, a, a, a Legion Heavy. That feels pretty good. Don't remind me, please. <laughs> <laughs> And then what about the last big, big bit of news? So Tony over at Advanced Maneuvers, he ended up talking with organizers over at PAX, and there is going to be a Mark IV tournament, PAX Unplugged. We're currently planning it right now, but that's the goal moving forward. So we're looking forward to doing a 50-point prime competition. And it's not going to be like, I don't want to say like super cutthroat competitive. It's more so like, let's see what our models do now kind of event. And it, I think it'd be great. It'd, we get the opportunity to go showcase all the new stuff. We get some pretty tables, show off all the new rules and just be able to go and converse. The event from talking with Tony, it's going to be supported by Privateer Press to include prize support uh, from both the company and the venue. Uh, shout out to Craig and company over at Warjacks. They are also sending us some some really cool prize support to be able uh, to use at the event. So thank you so much, guys. It's a, it's a big help. All right. Well, with all that out of the way, for those that probably went to go and take a look at the title, a chat with Matt Wilson. Oh, an awesome opportunity presented itself. Couldn't say no to it. And, you know, without further ado, we're going to get into 
the actual meat of this episode today. So I want to just take a moment and introduce Matt Wilson onto the show for the first time on Tried and True. Hi, everybody. Hi, Hi Matt. Welcome to Tried and True. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Speaking of privateer press. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> so with that, Matt, you were talking, you emailed me because I emailed you about the, the interview and then you got back to me about the print farm. How has this whole process been with, you know, getting, getting your feet wet with the 3D printing? I mean, every day is a new learning experience with it. Just like... Uh, it, you know, has been in the past when we got into production for the first time. When we first released War Machine back in 2003, at the time everything was outsourced, and we we didn't have any plans to actually start a factory and produce ourselves. But the, the launch of the game went much better than we expected, and we quickly outpaced what the the vendors that we were working with could produce for us. And so we found ourselves about three months into it needing to expand into our own production, and so we we jumped in head first and. You know, it's it's the same sort of thing, except I'd say this time it's a little more arcane than than the the old style that we were working with back 20 years ago. But we also have a lot more experience when it comes to just production in general. You know, and we're not new to 3D printing. We've been using 3D printers as part of our production process for at least a decade to create masters and prototypes for the molds that we would then produce metal or resin miniatures from. So that side of things, we have a a real good handle on it, but it is different when you scale that up to dozens and dozens of printers. You know, we're, we're running about 46 printers right now and our capacity is, is high, but it turns out that demand has been even higher than expected. And so we're working as fast as we can to deliver all those preview battle groups that, that were sold during Gen Con. It was an overwhelming amount of orders that came in in a very short period of time. And it's proven to be you know, even a little more overwhelming than we had originally anticipated. So we're working through those and we're getting close to being caught up. But it's, it's also, you know, we've learned a lot of things along the way. That was our first major production run. And I would say the, the way the process looks right now compared to what it looked like before Gen Con when we were producing the battle groups that we took there, it's evolved very, very quickly. I would say, if anything, it's gotten a little more complicated, right? We we keep adding steps to the process. And that's I think that the people have an idea that 3D printing is like you push a button and a little while later miniatures pop out of the printer ready to go. And that's it's just not the way it happens, right? It's it's about a 10 to 12 step process of printing the miniatures. And then as we turn the printers over, they have to be cleaned in between print cycles. They have to be refilled with resin if they have any print failures on them, which happens from time to time because 3D printers are still, you know, almost experimental technology at this point. I mean, they they work great when they work. And then when they don't, you know, it can be a horror show. I, I wanted to actually comment on that because I have an FDM printer at my house. And I'm telling you, if you don't level that printer and then you wait like two or three hours and then it fails to print, like, and you just feel like you waste the time. So I understand oh, yeah. the frustrations. It's a, you know, and it's a big process working with 10 of those printers at a time, right? As one person. And you're going through the process of leveling each one, cleaning the vats, refilling the vats each one, then queuing up the next print cycle. You forget a step in any one of those things. It, it's terrible. I, I was I was working in the print shop all last week because I wanted to really understand every aspect of the process. So I spent a lot of time in the shop and I was turning over, I think, a row of about eight or 10 printers at a time. And I went through and I did all the leveling and then I forgot to tighten the lugs on the plates and I started all the prints. And all of a sudden I had 10 printers that had printed 
1% of the print, which is, you know, that's one minute out of, you know, the next 180 or 240 minutes, but the print plates were all loose. And so I had to stop them all, redo them, re-clean everything, re-level everything. And it was, it's a, it's a heartbreaking moment when you go through all that and then have to do it all over again. But those are the kinds of things that we learn along the way and the sort of growing pains that we go through to establish a process that then, you know, we can impart to other people as we bring them in or other other folks are working in the print shop. So like I said, every day is a learning experience. There was just all kinds of different things. We, you know, learned different hacks, how to get through things faster, how to get stuff off a print plate faster, but it's a lot of handwork, right? The only thing that the 3D printer actually does for you is build the print. But everything else is manual labor, right? From starting the print to taking it off, cleaning it. And then there's many downstream steps in the post-printing process, right? From multiple wash cycles, drawing the models once they've been washed, and then curing them and QCing them. And then eventually they make it to a, a packing table where we start putting them in a box. So it is a, it's a lengthy process with mostly human effort. Matt, why do I feel like, as somebody with a background in the IT industry... Why do I feel like printers in general, like even paper ones, are just the worst every time? That's it's, that's the thing that always goes wrong. That's true. It's you know, I think it's it's because there's so many moving parts, right? They're both mechanical and electronic and they're they're super complicated. And the the more complex kinds of things that they print, the more things there are to go wrong. That's right. Years and years ago when I was working in the comics business, I had a friend who worked at Kinko's. And we used to pull a lot of late nights putting our Ashcan comics together. And he was real excited because at one point they were getting this big machine in that at the time was fairly new. I think it was called the DocuTech or something. And it was like a 15 or 18 foot long printer that could like print and bind and do everything. You'd put in the f- copies on the front end and out would come little, you know, stapled booklets. And we fired that thing up and it did not work. <laughs> it was, I think it was weeks before it was repaired and, and able to actually start working so yeah it's it's par for the course <laughs> i mean i just think as a teacher like the copy machine is broken like every time i use <laughs> something's it, so, never know. changed Paul. <laughs> <laughs> and, and matt i actually wanted to go say something i'm gonna go geek out for a little bit i i remember i don't remember which interview it was that you did but you mentioned that you were a magic the gathering artist for a while and when he said that i looked it up and i'm just like what did he end up painting up and i saw what you did onslaught so i was in my basement i had what is like simon and garfunkel like the tin can i was able to find my old uh <laughs> Uh, pacifism card like in there and i'm just like oh there he is like right there it was amazing to to see that and i guess what i wanted to do is ask about like the the change from because you you did hand drawings right or did you move into digital digital art as well i've done both all of the work that i did during the time i was working with magic i i was traditional back then i was doing a lot of a lot of painting i used to paint acrylics and then switch to oils and a lot of the work that i did initially for privateer the book covers they were all done traditionally in in oil paints so no that that's awesome i'm pretty sure there's still artists that end up using that same style now but there's now the change into digital i I might just suggest or may theorize that a lot of the magic art now is all digitally done just because it's faster you're able to ship it you don't have to worry about like sending the art from like through mail at that point and then we're talking about the technology of making these models and and the 3d printing and how 3d printing is now like the way moving forward just embracing these changes and being able to try these technologies out and and being able to make these decisions learn along the way be able to to fine-tune that craft in order to go make these excellent products yeah the digital tools 
started getting good back around the time that I was art directing Magic. And I think I was one of the first art directors to actually really allow artists to start working with the digital tools, which were kind of nascent at the time. So people were skeptical of them, but they improved super quickly and artists are great inventors. And so if you give them a tool, they'll, they'll find a way to make something wonderful out of it. And now it's completely changed the world of illustration with the portability of digital files compared to back then. Back when I was art directing, we'd do a 300 card set and I'd have 300 paintings that would show up on my desk and we'd have to process each one of those, you know, by actually photographing them and creating a scannable transparency. Those would get scanned into a special printer and then, which also, you know, never worked. Would malfunction, right? <laughs> and then, uh, and then we'd have to go through and, you know, manually color correct the artwork, and, you know, like side by side with the, the artwork. Nowadays, your color profile is built into the image and, you know, you get it through email or a Dropbox and it's lovely. The downside to it is that those sort of precious artifacts of artwork don't exist anymore. And those paintings, those originals, the sketches and things from the artists who worked traditionally back then have become very coveted. So there's quite a few collectors out there that have been amassing collections for a long time. And so and there's still people that are, are working traditionally, but I think it's, you know, obviously it's, it's much more common with the digital. It also shrank the world. When I was art directing, we pretty much were restricted to working with folks that were in the Northern Hemisphere and spoke English. Like we, we worked with folks in the US and in Canada and quite a few people in the UK. But beyond that, it was a lot more difficult to work with. But then as the digital tools evolved and progressed, and then the sort of internet opened us up to working with people all over the world. And now it's the, the illustration community of fantasy and sci-fi artists is global. It's not local at all anymore. We, even at Privateer, we work with people all over the world every day. So when are you going to allow Dolly to design an, a Privateer press miniature? <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. I haven't had a lot of time to play around with those. I tried the mid-journey the other day to see if it could make a warjack. <laughs> it did some really interesting things. <laughs> and it like you could see it was pulling up reference that I think I, I typed in Signar or Warjack or Machine or something like that just to kind of see what it might possibly do. And what came up didn't resemble a Warjack in any way, but it had little beats that you see in the Warjack designs. It had the right colors for Signar. I think Jack kind of throws it off because it usually had a human face. <laughs> oh my gosh. Really bizarre looking. So as, a, as an illustrator, as an artist, I'm sort of amazed and horrified and, <laughs> and frightened. It's real uncanny valley. <laughs> by where the, the AI is going. And it's I know it's new for a lot of people. I've been watching it for quite a few years, developing and seeing more and more how these things progress. But there's, uh, you know, ethical questions around it, as well as, you know, the technical stuff. Like, just because it can make interesting images, even images that are, are worthy of publication, there's, you know, some question about whether or not it should, right? Because it's, it's not really making new artwork, right? It's borrowing from thousands of things that it's been fed, other artists' illustrations. I mean, you could make an argument that human illustrators do the same thing, right? So, but when it's a machine, it's kind of a different thing. So for now, I'm a, a, a neutral observer. Just, I'm, I'm gonna try and stay amused and be less scared, but it is 
you don't know where it's going to go. Well, Matt, we have a handful of questions we wanted to ask you this evening. So we have things to ask about like conventions, specifically your position in, in general. I know me personally, when I did the original round of interviews, I'm like, can we get Matt Wilson? And Mike's like, eh, he's busy. It's hard to get that. So, I mean, these were just questions that I had specifically about that. And I guess like the development of Mark IV and I guess what you're looking forward to later on. So I'd love to give the opportunity for, you know, one of the other co-hosts to go ahead and ask one of the questions from our conventions. Sure. I'll, uh, I'll take this one. Hey, Matt. <laughs> so I'm a huge fan of conventions. Just recently started going to wargaming conventions. Gen Con, I haven't made it out yet, but it is on, on my list of places I want to go. So first off, congrats on the awesome showing that you guys had. It looks like you had a bunch of interest and a bunch of stuff sold out. Looks like everybody walked away with some pretty cool swag. So how was it? It was great. You know, this was our first time back in three years. So it was a little bit of, you know, relearning the process and knocking the, the rust off of the, the joints. But overall, it was great. And I, I would say, like, for the whole team that was there, we left feeling very reinvigorated and excited about what's coming for War Machine, what's coming for everything. And and I distinctly remember all of us kind of looking at it around at each other. We, we have a, a tradition Sunday night dinner after we finished the breakdown of the convention. And we all looked around and said, you know, we, we just can't wait until we come back next year. Like, and that's maybe the first time that I've ever said that about Gen Con. And I, I have to qualify that. That, I've, that was, I think, my 27th or 28th Gen Con. I've been doing it since 94. Oh, wow. So, and have only missed two that we took off for COVID and then one other one quite a few years ago. So I've spent somewhere between six and a half and eight months of my life at Gen Con, which is a long time when you kind of put it in those terms. So usually by the end of it, we're drained. Everybody's had a long week, light on sleep. We're hoarse. And oh yeah, we were feeling that after Nova. The last thing that we want to think about is coming back next year, but it was different this year. It was exciting. So it was great to see people that we hadn't seen in a long time. Great to see all the enthusiasm for the the Mark IV announcement and you know the entire weekend we had people coming up saying i can't wait to jump back into the game so overall it was it was definitely invigorating that's awesome so with warfare weekend coming up in november what events are you looking forward to having there in st louis well you know the big one for us is that we're finally going to wrap up the iron gauntlet that has been sort of on pause since COVID happened. So that was originally supposed to culminate at Lock and Load. And with us on hiatus right now, we thought Warfare Weekend would be a great place to finish that up and not have that hanging anymore. So that's that's the, the big one that we're looking forward to. Nice. And then are there any other conventions going out to the end of the year that Privateer Press is looking forward to? Well, it's, it's before Warfare Weekend, but we are sending a couple of staff to the WTC this year, So, which will be the first time That's that awesome. Privateer has actually attended the WTC and has had a presence there. And we've got some some things we'll be announcing pretty soon that we're doing to help support that event. So, so that one's exciting and we hope to make it sort of an annual thing for us in the future. I'm sorry. And also you have, you also have like Mythicos that's happening this Saturday, I think, because I saw that like you and Doug are going there. Yes, that's happening. I got to catch a plane in about 36 hours, I think. So myself and Doug Hamilton will be out there at Mythicos on Saturday for an in-store event. And that's something that was kind of not on the, on the books originally, but we met Nelson Martinez at Gen Con. We were talking about all the great things that they're doing. They were excited about Mark IV and we thought what a great opportunity to come, you know, do an event in their store and just kind of make it sort of a preview of, of what's coming from Mark IV. So we're excited about this. So Matt, when, you know, look at the pacifism card and I'm like, oh, like, let's look at the other artwork that you did. 
I saw, I don't know if, I can, if I'm going to pronounce this correctly. So I think it's Kamal Fist of Krosa. He looked like a black clad druid. And, I, and that was a piece that you end up doing. And said that Privateer Press was founded in 2000. And this card was 2002. Like, I guess how, like, was, was that an inspiration? Was it a black clad? Or was it just like this was the art direction that you were going with? And how long have you been thinking about the world of War Machine if, if there was influence with it? So it's not a black clad, but I would say I tend to have a particular style in my design work. And at the time, in that that time period from 2000 to, I can't remember if it was right before 2003 or maybe towards the end of 2002, I was actually the lead concept artist for Magic the Gathering. And so at the same time, we were on the side sort of starting Privateer up. Privateer did launch in in 2000 with role-playing games that were made under the, the D20 OGL. And so I definitely had Iron Kingdoms on my mind like all the time. And then I was also doing the magic artwork and the concept artwork. And so there is definitely some, I think, crossover in what I was working on. There's there's other things that there's so there's a couple of cards. I don't remember what they're called now in magic, but they definitely feel like proto death rippers. And there was a, what was the furnace dragon was another one where I was sort of combining mechanicals a very biomechanical sort of thing that it, it also was the case. If I remember right, it's been a long time and I'm going to look really old, but at the time, the world that we were working on for magic was very biomechanical. Like there was a lot of living machine kinds of things going on, like organic things with metal under the skin and not, not exactly what we were exploring in the iron kingdoms, but enough crossover that I think that my own sense of design sort of definitely like bled over into the magic work. All right. So I guess more of a business style question. So your title, Matt Wilson, colon, chief creative officer. Can you describe like what your role is and how you delegate different tasks and what kind of influences that has? How much time do we have? (laughs) All the time in the world, man. It's, uh, I mean, in a nutshell, I kind of am involved in in just about every aspect of the company. And, uh, up until recently, I tended to stay out of production. But as I said last week, I spent most of my time actually up to my elbows in residence. So, you know, I, I work with development. I work with graphic design, marketing, social media, everything. Every, every aspect of what we do, I'm in some way involved. I'm not allowed to touch money. That's that's the one uh, like no fly zone. I managed to spend a lot of it, but I always have to ask permission. So for the most part, I try and as the, as the chief creative officer, my job is to try and make sure that what we're creating is cohesive, you know, and feels like everything kind of goes together. The rules that we make, the the models that we create, the stories that we're telling, they need to all feel like they're part of the same world, the same vision. And and so I I don't these days really get to do a lot of hands-on stuff. Every once in a while, I'll do some concept artwork for a miniature. Usually, though, I'm pinch hitting in that case. More, I work as a, in a directorial capacity, working with the artists to produce the, the work, working with the writers to produce the stories. So very much at the sort of director level, but not doing the actual work that you you will see in the final product. So from the earliest concept art and whatnot, and all the way through to you know, Doug Sculpt and stuff. I will, Doug and many others, I'm sure. He gave us a little, a lot of insight, honestly, about how that process goes. If he hands you a model whose flavor isn't quite right compared to where you want it to be, like, how does that interaction go? 
do it again, dog. <laughs> <laughs> well, Doug will tell you. I mean, not my handing you a model, but, you know, showing you a sculpt of some kind. Yeah, again, you know, I try not to get too involved in the like individual management of projects unless it's something that I'm specifically directing. In the case of the model development process or the design process, usually, I mean, at the point that it gets into a sculptor's hands, we have a piece of concept artwork that's been worked out. And what we're looking for from the sculptor is for the, the sculpt to as accurately portray that artwork as possible. With that said, there's a there's sort of a, a filter process that sculptors go through in order to take a piece of two-dimensional artwork and interpret that into something that's going to actually work in 3D. And so we make you know allowances for that. I should say we have a we've developed a, a process for that. Ron Cruzy, our sculpting director, is fantastic at being able to interpret things or reinterpret them so that they they manufacture correctly. I mean, if you if you took one of our miniatures that's you know at thirty millimeter scale and you blew it up to life size, it would look completely out of proportion, right? The head would look like a giant melon. Um, you know, it would look thick and stumpy. The details would feel geometric and and whatnot. But that's what has to be done in order to create a miniature that has details and reads properly at that scale. And it's interesting and it's confusing. And even after doing it for 20 years, I would say my eye for it is not, not nearly as refined as say Ron's, who's, this is what he does every day. And he makes sure that the miniatures that we get from the sculptors are going to look awesome when they're produced at actual size. My part in that process is sometimes to add a second set of eyes. And especially when we're working with new designs, the stuff that Doug Hamilton has been working on, for instance, are the, the new Dusk models. And it's a completely new sort of aesthetic for us. And so it's something that we're kind of moving into and, and you know, learning how to best interpret it and learning how to how these you know new shapes and new designs work that we're putting into these models and so as you know another set of eyes and with an art background right i can look at that stuff and just offer you know my own creative feedback where we can adjust to get closer to the vision that the concept artist has said or you know what we need to be able to produce a great miniature yeah i mean certainly partially science partially art very much with the mark four stuff coming up everything we've seen especially specifically the warjacks to me everything's a little bit sleeker it's less stompy less less very bulky hinge joints going on even kador uh the direwolf dare i say looks sleek great bear is awesome more aerodynamic <laughs> uh, yeah i'm used to seeing this giant hunk of metal on the board that weighs four pounds and i can use as a doorstop is i'm assuming that's going to be sort of this is this is the showing the time skip kind of thing uh, yeah, somewhat, definitely. I mean, the setting is is evolving. You know, the technology is advancing a little bit. And I think, you know, we're reflecting that in the art style. I feel like the, the Great Bear is still a pretty pretty chunky boy. He's fabulous. I love him. You know, the, and the Dire Wolf, right, was meant to be their faster, lighter, heavy. And so it's great that that sort of comes through in the, in the design. The Storm Legion Warjacks definitely are a a step forward. In fact, I, to the point that we've sort of grown beyond the steam-powered miniature combat moniker, right? Because we're, you know, these guys are all electric. So I would say, you know, it's not, it's it's all by design, but also just an, an evolution of the craft as well. The Warjacks that I designed 20 years ago were a lot simpler in the design approach. And the concepts that we're creating today have more detail in them. You know, they're they're more realized. The designs are more complex. And part of that is because we can actually realize that level of complexity 
in because of digital sculpting where you know 20 years ago everything was made with green plumber's putty and you know it was hard to get that same level of of detail there are things that you can do with the the digital medium that you can really come close to at least at that scale that we were working in back then. It also gives the opportunity to, to try a lot more experimentation in how we do things. There's There are things in the past where we fundamentally changed the way rules would work because we'd get a model in and it was twice as big as what we had expected. And so all of a sudden, something that was supposed to be on a 30 millimeter base is now on a 40 or a 50. And it's like, well, that doesn't, you know, that looks a lot stronger than what it was meant to be, you know, but we would be up against a timeline. And of course we, you know, the payment of the sculpt and it was like, well, we can spend another couple of months and try and get it right. Or we can change the easy thing that we can change. Right. And that's like, you know, the rules now with the digital sculpting, it's a lot, there's a lot more precision and, you know, we can dial those things in that we, that we couldn't as well before. I was just going to mention with that, Matt, so as so the store, we're looking at the winter core models, the, the, the Gen Con box that I got, and we're like mesmerized by the detail in like the little area, especially like the backs of the jacks and like mm-hmm. their armpit area. It's like, they look really cool. The mace has holes and gaps and stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, and those, I would say, wait till you see the other stuff. Like there are some things coming that are really exciting because of the, what we can do with the, the 3D printing and how we can use that negative space that is a lot more difficult to do when you're creating models in effectively a two-part mold, whether it's in metal or cast resin or even you know plastic. Everything still has to get sandwiched and you can create elaborate and complicated things, but they are elaborate and complicated to put together where with the, the 3D printing, there's some neat things that you can do that were not practical or possible before. Matt, I'm I'm watching you glance down every so often when you talk about the new things coming up and my mind just keeps going, what is on his desk that he's got printed out <laughs> that he's staring at? <laughs> it's just a, a tyrant here that keeps me company during the day. That's awesome. It's a old prototype before we had the, the magnets on there, but oh, I've got lots of little things that I'm looking. Yeah, I guess that's a sort of a subconscious thing. Every time I'm talking about <laughs> models, I'm looking down at the models that we made. So, Well, I'll tell you for my part, when the new edition comes in, I think I'm going to be taking a few choice miniatures from the display case and moving them to my work desk upstairs so they can keep me company too. <laughs> but, you know, speaking of Mark IV, I had the pleasure of doing a short interview with one of the playtesters. And, you know, that got the gears turning up in my head. And I had a few questions that we'd like to ask you about less of a physical item or miniature perspective and more of how things, uh, how your role in the creative aspect of the function of the game goes. And, you know, how does the world building factor into rules that we might see on character cards and things like that. But to start us off, I just want to take a look at the broad strokes. This uh, preview of rules that we've seen for Mark IV really feels like it has a greatest hits of a lot of different things that we've seen in the past, and some things pulled in from Warcaster as well. But mostly speaking, it feels like there were a couple of you know key design goals that were trying to be met with a, a project like this when you're rolling into this new edition. And forgive me if I'm, I guess, putting words in your mouth, but to me, it seemed like you guys were trying to hit on making the gameplay you know, smoother and faster, and probably most importantly, 
more transparent or more clear to the opponents that are facing each other on the table. There should be less gotchas and there should be less unpredictability when it comes to what I am facing on the battlefield. I was wondering if you could help us unpack the different strategies or goals that you were going for from a creative perspective with Mark IV. I, I mean, I think you kind of summarized most of it right there. We uh, we definitely we went in with with a few key goals. One was to streamline the rules to accelerate gameplay because we know time is precious for everybody, and it's definitely not fashionable right now in tabletop gaming to have you know long games that are going to you know take a, a full evening or a weekend right mm. back in in my day when i was a, a player a game took two days we would set up the table on you know saturday morning and play through the day till late at night and i'd come back the next day and we'd hopefully finish the game by dinner time but and that was that was what we enjoyed like it was an event but with as as things have evolved far past my sort of prehistoric gamer days it's much more in vogue to have a faster game, one that you can, you know, have a large event with multiple rounds in a reasonable period of time, you know, where, where people aren't having to camp out. So that was definitely a goal, you know, and I, I think we achieved that as a step for sure. Another one was just reducing cognitive load on players. There's a lot of, you know, these types of games can be very complicated. War Machine is a complex game. It's, uh, you know, the, the fundamentals are easy enough to learn, but the rules interactions, when you get into the individual abilities of models or the weapons on those models, you know, those are those are things that even though they, they may work, it can be a lot to parse, right? And, you know, it's not, it, it's not our goal to have people just sit there constantly read text over and over again to try and understand something. So trying to trying to simplify things and reduce that cognitive load was part of it. And that's, that's also serves the speed of the game as well, right? If you have to spend less time thinking about the rules, then you spend more time playing. And, and so we, we sort of adjusted, you know, we made some, what we would call fine tuning adjustments, right? We don't, we don't want to rebuild the game. It's still got to be War Machine. It's got to feel like War Machine and play like War Machine. But there were, there were things that we could address that sort of helped move us towards those goals. And then, you know, and predictability was, was one of them as well, right? We, I don't think that anybody wants to play a game where you look down at your, you know, what your opponent has brought and think that you know whether or not you're going to win or lose. And so injecting a little bit of that more into the game, uh, you know, beyond just what the dice bring us was, was part of that. And none of these things were what we thought were big problems before, but it's just, it's an, it's an evolution of the game. Every new edition needs to evolve in some fashion. And I think that, you know, over, you know, from the first edition to the remix that we introduced, you know, have part way through it. And then Mark two, Mark three, like it's what we've done is just try and learn from, you know, all the feedback and what we observe over the, the lifetime of an edition and try and make a better version of it. And I think, you know, this is as each one has been, right. This is the best version of War Machine that there has been. Well, Mark III so far was the best version that I'd ever played. So I'm damn well excited for this one too. <laughs> and, you know, thanks for unpacking all those extra details for us. I just want to dig a slightly little bit deeper into kind of the, the process on the speed of gameplay. Currently, the community is kind of gravitated towards like 75 points, which runs on a two-hour death clock, each player having 60 minutes. Did you take a look at that two-hour mark and say, that's just too much? We want to target... 90 minutes between two players 
Or did you just kind of let that fall where it may after you shaved off a couple of other things? No, it, it definitely, I mean, there, there was a, a cognizant intent there because mm-hmm. for one, I, somehow the meta of Mark III evolved into that sort of 75 point place as being the play, the way to play the game. And I think that was one of the things that we're trying to foil with Mark IV is the notion that there's a way to play the game. Mm-hmm. It's not, in, it was never intended. It's not where we want to take the new edition. We don't want the game to present itself in a way that suggests that there's a right way to play or a wrong way to play. And at the same time, we, you know, we've, we've embraced the idea that players enjoy faster games as as just part of uh, their their daily play right not necessarily with regards to a steamroller or anything but if you go to a game store to play for an evening it's a better night if you get to play two or three games right against against different friends rather than being stuck in one game for the whole evening and so that's something that we were driving for with this as well that you know if you want to play those larger battles right we're definitely going to facilitate that we also are really going to reinforce the smaller gameplay so that you've got choices right and and they are meaningfully different experiences as well right if you play a 30 point game or a 50 point game you may not have as many options of models that you can put on the table right you know it was something we learned along the way right is that colossals in small games aren't great right not great for the game anyway right they eat up a lot of points and they can throw off the the balance and so you know we've created restrictions for some models at at different levels and we're designing other models to excel in at certain game sizes and maybe not be as good in other game sizes as as part of the design philosophy between behind them so that again once you you know when when you're playing in those different game sizes and we hope that people will explore you know multiple not not just sort of like be resigned to one you're actually going to have a really different experience and you get to flex different muscles in your brain and play with more of your collection rather than you know the same list over and over again so so i i guess uh you know variety is the spice of life and that's really kind of where we're headed with this so it's less of uh wanting to target you know just reduction on timing and things like that and more just making sure that the message goes out we want to encourage players to experience this game in a multitude of different ways bring a different point size army to the store play two games a night you know really get your feet wet or you know take a weekend and play a really big game if you want but but try everything and this is really going to open the doors on that hopefully yeah definitely i I couldn't say it any better great let's move on to some of the uh, most exciting changes for the new edition some of the customization one of the novel things that you've introduced is a handful of command cards that will give you some special abilities throughout the game. Can you expand on how that idea originated and you know how it may have changed the design team's outlook on the game in general and how different parts of that game move and work? Yeah, I th- with the command cards, I think we've only really kind of scratched the surface with what we've shown so far. I think there's a lot of neat things that we can do with them. Part of the idea behind the command cards is is that's an area of unpredictability, right? Like you, even though you may know what your opponent has, you don't necessarily know what they're going to bring in terms of the, the command cards. And those command cards, the way they interact with the models can fundamentally change how your army plays. Yeah, at the same time, those are, those are areas where we can explore a lot of different customization 
possibilities by doing command cards that are specific to a particular army or even command cards that are specific to a particular model. And those those kinds of things are diving a little deeper than, than what we've been able to show so far. We're looking forward to really mixing things up in our narrative organized play games with the command cards and being able to introduce new things that might be just specific to a particular scenario. You know? That sounds cool. So it gives us some, some new tools to work with in design. Again, creates a little bit of that unpredictability. And at the same time, it allowed us to achieve a little bit more of that streamlining or simplification that we were looking forward to by shaving some rules off of models that we could then sort of transfer to those command cards and still get the the kinds of effects that that make an army thematically interesting. Yeah, I like that it lends itself to that air of unpredictability that you mentioned that's kind of designed to be in the game. As Andy will tell you, he hates playing his uh, Maynoth army and when there's a million forests on the table and he doesn't have Pathfinder. But I'd, I'd wager that Protectorate looks a heck of a lot different when they can leverage a card that gives them Pathfinder where and when they need it. So that, that definitely gives you a chance as a player to dig those games out that maybe in Mark III would have been a non-starter for you. So I'm I'm excited to see that impact on the table. We know that Warjacks are also going to be customizable in Mark IV. Currently, with the preview boxes and everything that we've seen with the starter boxes, that'll that'll be the first couple ones off the, uh, off the production line. We're looking at what seems to be kind of a standard eight arms per warjack sort of thing. How many iterations did it take to go through? Like, do we want to give them six arms or 10 arms or, you know, like this must have been a sweet spot that you arrived at after a couple different kinds of tests. Can you tell us what in theory or at a high level that process kind of looked like or felt like to you? Well, it's, it has to take into account a number of different things, right? One of them is making sure that we provide enough variation that you can create interesting combinations. And we have to also make sure that each Warjack has, you know, an across the board, like covers all of the different sort of options that, that you're going to want for a Warjack, uh, whether it's, you know, a, a melee weapon or a long range weapon or something that produces an area effect. And, and I think probably the hardest part in that was working out the combinations so that, you know, between the, the left and right arms and making sure that we weren't producing possible combinations that were either redundant or not useful or that were, you know, too, too much. And then the other side of it is, is the physical production of them, which is, you know, we could put it in a whole bunch more arms and we certainly have the ideas for them, but at a certain point it becomes each one of those pieces that goes into the, the kit is going to be an increase in price. And there's a there's sort of a point at which if you buy a model, but most of the stuff in that kit is sitting on the side, you know, all the time, you're not really necessarily feeling like you got your money's worth out of your purchase. And so, you know, again, we hope that there will be, you know, fun and delight in changing the loadouts and customizing your warjacks between games. But also we want to make sure that we didn't put in, you know, weighed it too much towards the options and not enough towards, you know, what the, the actual model is that you're playing with. And that's always been uh, a consideration with any of the kits that we've done in the past where you had the options to create, you know, one of multiple possibilities in the kit is like, we, we don't want there to be a lot of waste, mm. but in the past, the kits, you know, whether they were hard plastic kits or, or resin kits, if they came with optional pieces, the, 
the conceit there was that whatever wasn't used was probably going to end up in your your bits piles, right? Like you know, they, it wasn't necessarily going to get used unless you unless you're you know an experienced or hardcore hobbyist and you did want to try and drill things out and add magnets or or whatnot. And so so what we did this time was we took this opportunity to to engineer the warjacks with the specific purpose of being able to, to change out those arms so that you do get to use all of them, right? And you don't end up with a bunch of waste. It also, you know, is, it plays into our, one of our goals, which I didn't mention earlier, but was to, to make sure that we don't run away with too many SKUs in, in the catalog, right? Too many different items that are difficult to stock or difficult to, for players to understand, you know, where to go to collect and build their armies for, with, with a with two warjack options in an army, and each of those having you know eight arms and and four heads, there's a lot of different combinations that you can build there, without having to you know purchase multiple warjacks, right? Um, yeah. Or even you know and and learn all of their their different nuances. So, and that was you know when we when we would do different warjacks in factions in the past, we were even though they might pretty be pretty much you know similar in the way they looked or um you know and only their their armaments were different we were always trying to find more ways to differentiate them with the the sort of built-in rules and and i think that adds complexity and cognitive load you know if you don't remember the difference between what your defender and your ironclad do or something like that right those are pretty simple versions but they got more complex from there right Mm -hmm. so now you can, you know, you learn your basic chassis of the Warjack and then the three different things that you're going to add to it are going to give you your variation. I'm I'm actually super happy to hear that some of that process went into making these compelling design decisions, even on paper and not just where the actual miniature and what could be produced as a product was concerned, because I think that shows really good eye for the longevity of the game and the rules that you guys are putting out. So, you know, props for building that into your design from the ground up here in Mark IV. To bring us home on the development of Mark IV, a lot of things have been announced recently. The smoke has cleared a little bit, and we're we're now seeing initial three Mark IV Prime factions, uh, factions or army boxes that will be coming out come from the Nation of Kador, the uh, overseas raiders of Orgoth, and the Signar Nation as well. We're going to be polishing off those first three with the introduction of Dusk a little bit later. And this question does in part come from some of our community members as well. There was some talk about, uh, you know, a brand new edition of War Machine is coming out. What are the main four factions going to look like? And I think there was a lot of surprise that the first four boxes we saw were not going to be, you know, Kador, Protectorate of Maynoth, Crix, and Signar. How did you guys come to the decision of which different military forces to launch the sedition with? Well, part of it was was knowing upfront where we were going with Orgoth. I mean, we knew back when we launched Mark Three that when if you know when we got around to Mark Four that we would be introducing the Orgoth, and a lot of that is based in the storyline, right? So we wanted to to wrap up the the infernal storyline in in the third edition and then basically create a new sort of world shaking event 
and um, and that was going to be based around the Orgos. So so they were already going to take up you know one slot of however many armies or factions that we we launched with. We also you know wanted to kind of split the difference between familiar and and new. And the the last part of that I think is is really trying to make sure that we've balanced out the the offerings in in their flavors, right? We want them to be distinct. Kador and Signar have always been sort of mainstays of of the setting and we felt like there was still places that we could go with them. Signar was a place where we could show a lot of evolution in terms of the technology where Kador is a place that we could show a lot of evolution I think culturally and as the as the sort of storyline plays out you'll you'll get to see more of that but I'm going to say longer beards <laughs> well, it's it's still it's still Kador you know for the motherland but it's a, it's a bit more they're they feel more like the evolution of tradition for me rather than the evolution of technology somewhat i mean we've done some, we've done some interesting things with Kador where you know they've eradicated the gray lords right that's a change in tradition yeah the uh, their approach to military is a bit different a lot less specialist roles and a lot more of sort of an everyman kind of thing where you can you can be a soldier but you could also jump into you know a new man of war suit right and without necessarily having to be bolted in there and boiled alive it's it's sort of everything is sort of being designed around this sort of common soldier idea. But then also, as you'll see in the, in the storyline with them there, it's not Kador hell bent on conquest anymore. It's Kador trying to save their bacon, you know, as the, the Orgoth invade and they're really being put on their back foot. And for the first time in, you know, I think in, in our storyline ever, we're seeing them as, as sort of the underdogs. And it's a neat place to, to explore with Kador where we can still have everything that was interesting about Kador before, but but now we get to look at them through a different lens, and so so those two those two factions and the armies that we're showing off so far are things that we felt like offered that familiarity, sort of grounding in what people know and appreciate about War Machine, but still gave us new space to to explore. And then on the other side, we knew the Orgoth were coming in and that would be something new and Dusk sort of rounded it out. And there was a lot of discussion back and forth on, you know, do we go with Crix or some form of Crix? Because Crix is still part of the storyline, right? Like, you know, all of the factions, well, unless they've, you know, met an untimely end, they, they're in some way still, still part of the setting. They may or may not end up with armies in the next few years, but they are they are present in some fashion and and we've got our eyes on all of them. Some of them are evolving beyond, you know, what their previous faction was. And that's sort of the dusk is not retribution, but it's an evolution of the Iosian people. It has a lot of their culture still still present there. And you'll see like when we finally start showing off the House Callus designs, you'll see the the influence that retribution design had, but you'll also see that it's a really wildly different sort of thing and uh, and has a, a flavor unto itself. And so once once we sort of locked in with those armies as our first four and fourth has always felt sort of like the the right number for us to to go out with because we can give you know four distinctly different flavors there kind of you know all all the food groups and try and appeal to you know, as, as much of the community as possible. And that's a harder thing to do now after years and years of a dozen to 15 different factions and 
sub factions within factions and and things you know uh, people have sort of locked in their their own sort of preference and we can't we can't cover all the bases at one time it will take another you know 20 years to to be able to produce that many new variants right on on things but but we wanted to try and like hit the the big beats and then you know and we've got more stuff that we're we're queuing up right now we're getting into the the design of the next two warlock led armies and those are going to be exciting and and you know both have familiar elements as well as things that we haven't done before and, and we're excited to get into those so and then some of it you know at the end of the day is we're we're led by our creativity and and what we're inspired by you know and that's when we get excited about a particular direction a particular army that's usually the direction that we go you know it's not we didn't decide on armies based on you know market research or user data right like these aren't these aren't engineered by an algorithm that tells us what's going to be most marketable it's all you know by gut and interest and excitement and and usually like you know when we're throwing ideas around the table if if everybody sort of sparks to let's do uh, uh, gothic cyber elves, right? Like it's, <laughs> that's a terrible way to describe them, but, um, but that's it's canon now. It's, yeah. I'm, like, I'm going to, I'm going to regret that. Maybe you could bleep it. Um, <laughs> it's uh, cause that's not, that's not what they are, but they, they do have that, that more alien or advanced technology that we saw with retribution. They definitely have a, a, a Gothic vibe and they're, I, I think they're lovely. But it's just one of those things when, you know, when we when we can kind of like start jamming on that stuff and everybody goes, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Like, let's go in that direction. Then then we feel like we've got something and, you know, we we lock it in. And that's that's how most of our our you know creative decision is made is is really like, what are we excited to work on? You know, it's it rarely, if ever, is it to necessarily like cater to a specific market need, if you will. It's really like I, we kind of, we hope that if we think it's cool, you know, cool enough that we're going to spend the next several years of our lives, you know, our time and effort into it. If we think it's cool enough to do that, hopefully other folks will too. You know, not everybody will, not everybody, you know, it's impossible to do an army that everybody loves. Right. So I, um, you know, I love everything that we do, but you know, it, people pick their favorites and we expect that. And we, and, and that's kind of what makes the community interesting too. If you build it, they will come, right? Hopefully. It's no and, guarantee. And speaking of building it, I'm going to leave you with one more on this line of questioning. If you had to make a snap decision, you're building one of the two new armies, Orgoth or, or Dusk, you know, for Matt Wilson's money, what is, what is he most excited to put about on the table? I'm going to go with Orgoth right now because I can <laughs> That's all I need. Orgoth it is. All right. Thanks. Okay. Hey, Matt. So let's let's talk a little bit about some of the current practices and looking forward. Uh, we have one of our players, Pete. He loves doing kit bashing things. He loves to, you know, grab a bunch of different pieces and make some really funky looking models out of it. With with 3D printing, because you mentioned it earlier, will like the individual's parts be available, like that individual part store uh, be able to be available? And is it easier to make that happen with the 3D printing or are you still not too it's, sure about It's that? not necessarily any easier. In some ways it, it could be. It's it's actually, it's a discussion that we're having right now as to whether or not we want to get back to individual parts sales. We we got to a point with it in the past where, you know, maintaining 10,000 
plus parts is is quite a bit. And the the challenge that it presents is if we have something that is available to order, but we don't have it in a bin on the shelf, right? Then we got to make that part, and and that is extremely inefficient for production. Our conversation right now is: is there a way for us to address that? in the with the 3d printing process that makes it a little bit easier and possibly it is but it also means that we have to have a means to group parts orders if that makes any sense because it it doesn't make any sense for us to devote an entire print cycle to a single part and at the same time we're not really interested in keeping bins and bins of all those individual parts available because as I said, that's a, that's a tough one. Even ultimately, we're going to run into that situation where somebody's ordered something, we don't have it in the bin and we have to make it. So what we have to develop is a process that allows us to produce those parts basically on request in a way that's not taxing to our production team and our packing team. And it's we, we definitely have an interest in getting that figured out because we know that there are people who love to, to model that way. It's not where we're at yet, but I'd say, you know, we're going to work towards it. Speaking of new 3D elements. So in a separate interview, if I'm remembering correctly, you alluded to the, the possibility of new 3D terrain designed by Fiberteer Press. Is there, is that a possibility in the future? Um, it's a possibility. Definitely. It's, it's something that we're actively exploring where it's, it's sort of taking a backseat to getting the army's, produced, but it is something that we want to do. Yes. So we're all about organized play. So we, uh, especially for new metas or for new players coming in, you know, Escalation League, uh, et cetera. So looking at the calendar, it looks like that the end of February is when we're going to have store and club organized play. Will Privateer Press be sharing other organized play events that will help draw new players or more players into the hobby? Uh, definitely, yeah. I, we've got quite a few things that we want to do that'll that'll fall into that organized play bucket. So, in fact, we just sent out our our December solicitations, and we had a, a special retailer bundle there for the first uh, uh, journeyman kit. So we're we're hoping to have those going early in the year, and then we'll move into things like leagues and and one off events, and we've got all kinds of things that we want to do. That's awesome. That's awesome. So with the organized play, will that information be available via the War Machine app, or is there another location that our event organizers would would need to pull that information from? I, I think that for the forthcoming few months, it's probably something that will be available through our website or mailing list, uh, we'll, we'll send that information out. Ultimately, we want to use the War Machine app for as much of our, our content as possible. And if it makes sense, you know, and, and I think it will, right, to have that type of information in the app, we will. I For sure, what we'll have are the the material that you are going to use in at the event, right? So if we if we do, you know, say something like a, a longest night event, right? That'll that'll get published through the app, and you'll have those rules available there. I'm sure we'll announce them and you know publicize them through all of our other channels, website, social media, and things like that. But but the 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 usable parts of the organized play, the goal is to have all of that in the app. So I'm going to preface this by saying that I am on team retribution. When I was talking to Lauren, uh, she ended up mentioning that I was going to be excited because some stuff was going to happen. And I can't wait for dusk. I, I'm going to tear the box open. 
I can't wait to I think I think the 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 description was sleek and evil is what Doug said on your last primecast. I can't wait. I wanted to ask though is that I looking back at the the big calendar that you presented back in the announcement of 4, I think Dusk had their battle box being released in April and then there's a large gap between April and August. Is this a cautious approach? Kind of like how you said that you're learning that you're getting the kinks out of the whole 3D printing and and getting stuff uh, I guess like under your belt moving forward was this like a, a, a cautious approach or is there more goodies down the pipeline that we can look forward to like potentially a army box for dusk i should have pulled up the calendar i think if we if we cut it at dusk i think that was because we we wanted to sort of focus on that as an event but if there are their army boxes slated for april right now and that means that by May, what we would see is their individual warjacks and and their their third warcaster and June would probably be their expansion box, and then eventually their the model that will be on an eighty millimeter base. So we'll have we'll have several months of dusk releases that are that sort of start in April and and carry us into the summer. And then the the target right now is to be showing off, hopefully releasing the the two new warlock led armies at. Gen Con next year. Well, I, I had another. I had another comment, and uh, at least when I remember Dusk was announced that it was the Eldritch, and then everyone saying vampires, and I go back to Mini Cray because Assyria had the 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 vampire version of her, and then it was like, oh, yeah, that was the writing on the wall it was going to happen. And then it's like, yeah, the mini crate models are, are the future. So it's it's all vampires and cowboys, apparently, for retribution. <laughs> um, but 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 speaking of mini crate, though. I guess what alternative models are we going to be expecting to see? Are they going to be mostly the Mark IV stuff related? Because I saw that you had the Oregoth Sea Raider um, or the Beach Raider that was available. Is, is there going to be any for the legacy content? Or are you really focusing on just Mark IV going forward? No, there's definitely legacy content. So, and we sort of front loaded the new armies in Mini Crate because we've been working through that legacy content. We want to make sure that whatever we do in Mini crate is going to be usable as a prime legacy model. So, and you'll start to see those. I'm going to say probably a few months from now. Or we may even show previews off sooner than later. But anything that is going to be in in mini crate is going to be either usable in a in a new Mark IV army or usable in a prime legacy army. I think we might have touched on this at the beginning of the interview based on one of the comments you said about upcoming events and some things that you're excited for. You mentioned Iron Gauntlet, and I know it's been a few years for myself as well, but if my recollection of that event style is what it once was, I think this is the type of format that has multiple parts to it, right? Or is that a different format from the past? At some point you had to convert from one size army to another size army and include other things. I think there was like a uh, a Mark II format uh, at one point. You had to go from 50 points to 75 points and use all the stuff you had at 50 points. I don't know if I can answer the question, to be honest. I I think you're right. I think if I remember right, and it's been a long time, I think that Iron Gauntlet was played at 75 points, but I think they went up to 100 points for the final round. That was it. Yeah. So, and, and that was our sort of the showcase game that we would dream. Mm-hmm. So like in that avenue, uh, and you can answer it or not, but in that avenue... I like that sort of thing. That is a challenge mid-game that players can rise to. And I think that's really cool. With the new 50, 7500, you know, with all of the the new formats that we are 
you know, burgeoning on here. Has there been any discussion of trying to reintroduce that sort of challenge to some of your, uh, not all, but some of your competitive events? A hundred percent. Yeah. The, the idea of a sort of escalation format is something that I've actually wanted to introduce for a long time. There's practical reasons for it, right? Which is that, you know, in a, in a large format tournament, we can get through the smaller game size rounds faster, right? Get more rounds into to the game. I personally do think that it makes for a fun challenge, right? And, and again, sort of addresses that goal of making sure that the game isn't solvable, right? Because you've got these different levels that you're going to be playing at. Your army's going to change from round to round. And, and that, that was one of the things that I that I did like about the, the Iron Gauntlet format, right, was that we had that sort of big showcase game, but it's just one round, right? And so we can sort of like, at that point, it's we're down to the last two players and everybody's watching to see how it's going to go and, and we can watch a two-hour game unfold, but we don't, you know, you don't really want to run two-hour rounds, right? They're, it's a long time. So yes, I mean, that's, that's definitely something that we're going to be exploring and more in the future for next year, you what we're probably going to be more focused on than anything are the 50 point games and there's a there's a a, nece- a necessary reason for that which is that early on not everybody's going to have 100 points to play with right or 75 points you're going to get your army your core army starter which is a little bit more than 50 points but depending on how you load your jacks out and you know which command cards you take and things like that but it's really it's meant to give you a good selection of things that you could build a variety of, of 50 point forces from but it'll be a couple months down the road after that before the expansions come out that would even let you step up to to more unless you were to buy multiple starters which which isn't really what we're expecting we're not designing a sort of release format to to support that our, our hope is you know People will sort of collect a, a full army, so you have all the different options. But then, you know, if you if you want to build out one style of infantry more than another or something like that, maybe you you add to that. But because of this is you know the first year of all these new armies, right? It's going to take a while for people to collect those forces up to the higher game levels, and so that's why I think we're going to probably be sort of stuck on fifty points here for the next year, and then once we get into the second year of Mark IV, that's when we'll we'll start to see larger games. That's awesome. Thanks for that insight. So I'm a huge lore nerd. No Quarter Magazines, The Insiders. I really enjoyed the old, the small novellas. Big credit to Oren Gray and that Faithless book for cementing my love of the different Menite cultures. Now that everything's kind of, it seems to be, you're kind of enveloping the, all the lore dumps in your app. How did that decision come about where you wanted to say, I'm going to build armies, I'm going to have lore. How, how did that decision to say, we can do this all in a single app? It, it just sort of was, I think, where we evolved to over time. And the idea of having sort of a, a centralized repository of all of the information and content that we'd be putting out, making it accessible to to folks uh, and, and embracing the everything that's possible in the in the digital medium, right? From the way we manage the game and updates to the way we can deliver content. And uh, as I haven't thought about the sort of decision-making process behind it in, in a while, but I, I'd say it really was just sort of after years of producing, you know, content over a variety of platforms and mediums, 
kind of coalescing it all, gathering it all into one place sort of made sense. And and I and some of that may have been just also in, in the back of my head thinking about the sort of challenges one might have right now if you were to try and like track down lore that appeared in different books or publications and, and whatnot. And and we have always been lore nerds ourselves, right? I mean, we, we love creating it and we've sort of done it a, a little spastically, right? Like where, you know, sometimes the storyline appears in the magazine and other times it's in, it's part of a novel or it's part of a game book. And there's not a, there, there hasn't been a structured roadmap for it. So, you know, if you were somebody who followed it from the beginning, then you've probably digested a lot of stuff over time. But if you, if you're trying to jump into it right now, then it's a lot more difficult. So that was, again, one of, one of our goals with Mark four was to create a, a new entry point into the setting where you don't have to know the last 20 years of fiction that we've created in order to understand the world and the state of the setting right now or the events that are going to play out. But because of the the app and, and sort of making the decision to make that our, our content delivery place, if you jump into the game three years from now, right, you'll be able to go back and access that that content in one place. And, and there will be more structure to how it's organized and archived. And you won't necessarily have to, you know, go on eBay and try and track down a 22 year old book. So yeah, someone who, um, who fiddles with war room way too much. I think your app is going to get a lot of use on my, on my phone, unfortunately. <laughs> Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your outlook, I guess. Quick, Matt, are you going to be republishing some of the old stuff in the new app? You know what? Honestly, I hadn't even considered it yet. So I'm going to put a big old maybe on that since that maybe is something that we should think about. I'm not sure. I guess if it makes sense, you know, it, it's a lot of that older stuff is is archived away. And if we did dive back into it, it may or may not be relevant at this point. I'm not sure. All right. Well, we actually just that was uh, what was that? That was like, what, almost an hour and a half worth of information in there that's been great matt i have to say like this has been a fantastic time to go and talk about everything about talking all the resources the you know the development of where privateer press is going again i I, as i said before we got started if you were to tell me that this was happening like half a year ago i'd be like nah you're you're full of it so this has been been an amazing experience so i i you know just wanted to thank you so much for you know coming on to the show and ask if uh, you you had any closing remarks that you wanted to have um boy that question always throws me everybody asks what what do you what's on your mind and i I never am quite sure what to say, because especially because we, we cover so much territory. If I start in on something new, I'll probably talk too long on it. You but... know, we're all just hoping for spoilers. Yeah, you know, <laughs> dusk, please, dusk. <laughs> well, you know, so, so that's, you know, I, I think that's actually what's been on my mind. Uh, you know, one of the things that we, we talk about internally right now a lot is how to address all the questions that come up on a daily basis and the desire for spoilers. And we know that war machine community is made up of the most passionate players in, in the world. And they care about all aspects of the game from the rules to the lore, to the models. But, you know, with, with thousands of people making up this community, the questions get generated a lot faster than we can necessarily come up with answers for them. And it's, it's something to remember that we're, we're just a few people making these products. It's not like we've got, you know, teams on, on every aspect of it. It's the same folks doing, doing all of it. And, you know, we're doing the best we can. We're moving as fast as we can, but it takes time for us to 
cook all this stuff up. And a lot of times the questions that are being asked about things like we haven't gotten to those ourselves yet. You know, we're some months, you know, some of these things we've been thinking about for years, but other things are are new. But, you know, there's we know that there's a lot of burning questions about what's going to be in like the prime legacy armies or the cadres that we've been talking about a lot lately. But like those those legacy conversions are a work in progress and they will be for the next year and, and beyond. So if we haven't published something yet, then we probably don't have that information to provide yet. You know, But as soon as we do, we're going to make it available. We're not holding anything back just to hold it back. We, we just have a lot of development to do. And on top of that, a lot of other things that, that go along with the new editions. So, you know, we, we, we love everybody's enthusiasm. We appreciate your patience and, uh, but, and we, we will get to everything when we, we can. That's awesome. All right. And then with that, we'll go ahead and do a closing remarks. So, so Dan. Well, you know, if Paul's shocked that he gets to have an interview with Matt Wilson, I'm equally shocked that we are here today, having been roped in to do only six episodes and a finite podcast, yet here we are. But Matt, uh, as you just said, I want to thank you for all of the transparency that you bring to the table and all the goodwill that you've shown the community. You certainly recognize that you have a uh, group of diehard fans here. I'm happy to count myself as one of them. And so it's been awesome getting to put a face to the name finally. So thanks for joining us. I really enjoyed this opportunity. Thank you very much. Thanks for, thanks for having us on the show. <laughs> and Matt, yeah, again, on behalf of Tried and True and Delaware War Machine, thank you so much for sharing your time and answering our questions and giving us a lot of really good insight. Starting next year, man, I've been playing your game for 20 years. I first picked it up in high school back in the early 2000s and it's still my favorite it's a fabulous it's a fabulous time the new models that are coming out are they're really high quality it's, you know some of the some of the weird stuff you read online i ain't seeing it in what i got everything is <laughs> everything is you know chef's kiss it's it, it's good stuff so yeah just, just keep making good games and thanks for uh thanks for being on the show oh thank you thank you very much the pleasure has been mine yeah, uh, I guess what my wife said. I've only been playing since 2017, but she wrote me in, and I haven't let him go. So, thanks a lot for your time, Matt. Thank you. And and I'm I'm gonna go ahead and just do a little bit of a of a short thing. My actual first experience, I remember, and Erica, maybe you could speak to this. I don't remember what the event was, but it was in our parents' basement, like at the bar. And your friends brought over Infernal Contraptions. And that was my first experience into the Privateer Press games. And I remember it just being just a wacky, silly, fun game. It was great. Picked up Zombies Keep Out. And in 2017, when Erica and Andy were getting into it, they were like, hey, do you want to play this game with us? And, you know, I tried it when I was younger. Didn't have the money to play. But now I'm like, hey, I have disposable income. Why not? But I have to say, Matt, thank you for giving me an opportunity to engage in a hobby that not only has brought me really great memories, but just being able to, to get connected with people. I would never have met Dan. I wouldn't have had the relationship that I have with my sister and brother-in-law right now. So I just thank you for creating a product that gave me this opportunity. That's awesome. Awesome to hear. Thank you. Right. Well, with that, I think that gets us to the end of this episode. So I guess we're going to go and take a peek on what's to come. You know, make some Mark IV content and we'll see what happens next. So from all of us here in the Delaware War Machine community and on Tried and True, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Bye. Bye.